0: From John chapter 3, and we are reading from verses 22 to the end, which is 36. John the Baptist's testimony about Jesus. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptising at Anon near Salem because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptised. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, Well, he is baptising, and everyone is going to him. To this John replied, A man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him, and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth, and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives the spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him.
1: All those out there who are parents with kids that are at school age, you've you've probably experienced this at some point or another. It's where you actually lose your identity as your own self, and you only become a person in relation to your kids. So for example, my entire adult life, I was James Snare. But to my children's entire school community, I'm Lily's dad, or Maddie's dad, or Daniel's dad. I have no identity to them beyond the fact that I am the father of the person they know. Right, we go along to the school things and all that sort of stuff and they'll, they'll come up, my, you know, their friends will run up to them and be like, is that your dad? It's like, they don't say hi to me. They don't say, hello, what's your name? It's just, you know, their only point of concern is their friend to me. They get, you know, an award or something like that. I'm like, I raised this child. Uh, I'm the one who has taught them. I, 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 I've contributed to this award. Is my name on the award? It's not. On, on the award. It's just, it's just my child's name on the... Well, but you know what? I don't care. It's great because my whole job is to make sure that they are doing great. That they, and as they start off on their journey and all that sort of stuff, it's not about me. I just want them to do well. I don't care if I'm Lily dad or anything else like that. I, I, I just want them to be growing and being healthy and get all the good stuff that you know that happens as you grow and all that sort of thing. All right? we, we understand this concept of becoming less so that somebody else can become Greater. And we're going to see in this passage how this is the basic concept that we're meant to grab hold of as we think about what it means uh, and our renown in this world compared to that of Jesus. What it means, as it says there, for him to become greater and for us to become less. So we're going to look at this uh, in three sort of sections, just like we did last week, actually. We're going to look at this dialogue that happens between John the Baptist. And his disciples, then we're going to look at John's comments on that, and then we're going to think about what that means for how we are to live. I'm going to try and get through the first part fairly quickly, because I really want to spend some time thinking concretely about what this looks like for us. Okay, So this passage picks up uh, not long after the exchange that we saw last week between Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus has come to Jesus' at night, we saw that whole conversation. And now a little bit later, Jesus and his disciples have gone out into the Judean countryside, they're chilling there, but Jesus starts to do something new, he starts to baptise some folk himself. Now John the Baptist, Okay, not John the Gospel author, there's two Johns here, so it always gets a little confusing, we've got John the Baptist all right, who we're looking at, and then we've got John the Evangelist, the Gospel writer. Okay, those are the two guys. John the Baptist, he goes further north from where we saw him chatting with Jesus last, to a place called Anon near Salem, and there, there's lots of water, that's why he's gone there, people are still coming to in to get baptised, but he sort of moved further away from where Jesus is at. And then John's disciples get into this debate or maybe an argument uh, with this Jewish guy about what ceremonial washing is really all about, something about baptism. We don't know the specifics, but it seems to be connected to the fact that Jesus is baptizing people because the whole group of them come to John the Baptist with a question, okay? He didn't actually look like this, but you know, whatever. Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. Now, on the surface, this looks like they're, just, they're, they're reporting some news, right? There's nothing inherently hostile or negative necessarily in there. It reads fairly neutrally until you, you think about it a little bit more, okay? The last time that John the Baptist was with Jesus, John the Baptist's disciples were there, okay? And he made some pretty big proclamations about who Jesus is you see them a little bit. This is the Lamb of God. This is the one who was greater and all that sort of stuff. But how did John the Baptist's disciples uh, talk about him now? Well, they say, that man who was with you, the one you testified about. See, John the Baptist is their guy. Baptising has been his thing. It's literally what he will get named for through history, John the Baptist. And so they're coming and they're like, you know that other guy that you were talking about, well, he, now he's baptising folk too. And you can sort of feel it, right? There's this sense of, isn't that your thing? Isn't that our thing? What's going on here? They're subtly putting Jesus down and elevating their guy, John. But John the Baptist sees this and has a pretty, I think, patient and corrective attitude to what they're doing. He doesn't re- rebuke them too harshly or anything like that, but he's going to teach them on this point. He says a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. That's a short statement but it's it's powerful. Everything that we have in this world, everything that we get, it comes from God. God is in control of all things. And John understands that this even applies to the roles that we play in this world, the things that we are called to do. And John the Baptist has always understood what his role is in this world. It was to prepare the way for the Messiah. He was never about it being the John the Baptist show. He always understood that his gig was to prepare the way for Jesus. When the Pharisees and the religious leaders came to him saying, Who are you? Because crowds were starting to follow John the Baptist. He said he didn't even say he was a person. They're like throwing these lofty titles at him. He's like, "I'm, I'm the voice of one calling in the desert, makes straight the way for the Lord. He understood who he was in comparison to Jesus. When he saw Jesus, he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. This is the one whose sandals I'm not fit to tie John the Baptist had no delusions of grandeur about what his job was. His job was to get the way prepared for Jesus. And to help his disciples understand this a little bit more, he's going to use the analogy of a wedding. Alright? So he says, you yourselves have heard, I'm not the Christ, but I'm sent ahead of him. That was my job. Okay? And it's like this. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. Now this is an interesting analogy to use to start with because there's a couple of different places in scripture that talk about how the church all those believing in jesus are like a bride to him so paul uses this in two corinthians he's talking to the church there and he says i'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy i promised you to one husband to christ so that i might present you as a virgin to him the church is the bride of christ and then in revelation let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come And his bride is made ready for herself. That's the picture that we have when the church gets together with Jesus at the end times. It's like picture like a wedding ceremony. Maybe John the Baptist has this in mind, that Jesus is the groom and the church is his bride and it's good and right that people are now going to him to be baptized. Maybe, that's what he's thinking about. But whether he's referring specifically to that or not, this bride analogy is really helpful. So he says the the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him. And it's full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it's now complete. You know that person, uh, when you go to a wedding, and they, they just, as soon as, like, the bride rocks up, they just, they start crying? It's, they, they, so they, they've been playing with the final, all of a sudden, like, the, the music plays or something, like, they turn And like, <laughs> they don't. You know, I mean, I guess occasionally it could be envy and jealousy, but not normally. Normally it's, we're we're happy, okay? We're just so happy for them that this moment has arrived. And with this one, you know, Jesus is the groom, not the bride, but John the Baptist is saying, I'm just like the friend at the wedding who hears the groom's voice and is just so stoked for them. So happy that they've come. So happy that this moment is here. I love the way that he says it. that, that, That joy, of of when the friend hears the groom has arrived and there's no thought of themselves. It's just, oh, I'm so stoked for them. That joy, that's the one that I feel right now. It's complete. This joy, this hope that I've had, now that Jesus has come, I'm just so happy and overjoyed that this moment is here. And so he says, that's what it's like. He must become greater. I must become less. Like Norbert in KidSpot there, talking about how he's getting everything ready for the friend's party and all that sort of stuff. Norbert misunderstood what his role in the whole gig was. The appropriate response is for the friend who's getting ready to party for everybody else is when the friend gets there, when when the birthday boy gets there, we're just so stoked. I don't care if I get forgotten about in the background. It's all about them. Brief Remember last week we looked at the dialogue between Nicodemus and Jesus and then we saw how uh, if you've got a red letter version of the Bible, depending on when that version was written, the red letter either stopped at like verse fifteen or continued on down to verse twenty one. Turns out, same thing here. Alright? We're pretty sure now that the end of the dialogue here happens at verse thirty. This is the exchange between John the Baptist's guys and John the Baptist. And then from verse 31 onwards, we've got John the Evangelist, John the Gospel author, throwing his comments in again. Remember, we said last week, it's sometimes hard to figure out where speeches start and stop because in ancient Greek, there was no quote marks. So it was hard to know exactly where it ends. But again, as I've been reading through it this week, I'm I'm fairly uh, compelled by the argument that this here, from verse 31 onwards, is John the Evangelist's comments on what John the Baptist was just saying. And... Again, the content doesn't change, but it does sort of just change the way that we look at it a little bit. Because again, we've just had this exchange now between John the Baptist and his guys. It's finished with John the Baptist's declaration that Jesus must become greater and I must become less. And now John the Evangelist is going to throw some thoughts on here. And it's good for us to think through, why is that? Why does he throw these thoughts on top of that story that he's just shared with us from John the Baptist? So now John the Evangelist, I believe, writes... As John the Baptist just said, he must become greater, I must become less. And then John the Evangelist says, the one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. Jesus testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. This is one reason why I think it might be John the Evangelist writing. It would be a little bit weird for John the Baptist to say that nobody is listening to the testimony of Jesus, considering Jesus has literally just started his stuff, right? Like, it's only been a few days that Jesus has been out there doing his thing. It would be a weird thing for John the Baptist to all of a sudden say, no one's listening to him. It's like, well, have we given them a chance? Anyway, it makes more sense if John the evangelist is looking back 60 years later and saying that the one who was from heaven has come into this world, and no one has accepted his testimony. But it's like he's saying to us the reader, don't don't be fooled by this. He is the one who is from above. He is the one who is from heaven. And he is indeed the one who is above all. John the Baptist is right. He is greater. So he goes on. The man who has accepted it, what Jesus has testified to, has certified that God is truthful. For the one who God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives the spirit Without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. He's saying that. God has given His Spirit to Jesus to proclaim the Word of God. And when you believe what Jesus spoke about, then you are affirming that God Himself is truthful. Because it is Jesus' job to speak the words of God the Father. And this has eternal consequences. For whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life for God's wrath remains on him. Now, does that sound familiar? Right, Because it sounds very much like John 3.16 last week which we also think was John the Evangelist speaking, right? So he said in 3.16 and 3.18 I've left out 17 there for time's sake. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Real familiar, right? I mean, it's it's the same basic idea. There's two camps that you can fall into here. Either you're believing in Jesus and you will receive eternal life, or you are rejecting Jesus and you stand condemned and remain under God's wrath. Those are the two camps that you can fall into. In two. So that's twice here in chapter 3, where we've had a story that John the Evangelist has shared with us, and then after the story, John frames things in terms of, Reader, do you understand? You are either believing and receiving eternal life, or you are rejecting and stand condemned. Why are we condemned? Well, the rest of the Bible teaches us that we are sinners. We've fallen short of God's glory. We have made much of ourselves and less of Jesus and chosen to live our own way and God is the rightful king of all justly condemns us for that. Because I think this is the connection here between John the Evangelist's thoughts on what John the Baptist has just said. If God sent Jesus into the world empowered by his spirit to speak God's word and then I hear that and reject it, I've done the exact opposite of what John the Baptist is encouraging folk to do. John the Baptist is saying, he must become greater, I must become less. But if I choose to reject God's testimony and choose to go with my own narrative to tell the story that I want to tell, to make the world however I want to make it in my own head, I'm making a lot of myself. I'm replacing the God of the universe with my tiny, finite, limited perspective and saying, no, no, I got this. I've made much of myself and made less of God. And John the Evangelist doesn't want us to do that. He wants us to hear God's word and to affirm that it is indeed truthful and receive eternal life. That, that, that's what he wants for all of us. So as we... As, just had an there's in there to work back. I should have shown that. That's all right. That's why he says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. So this passage has two meanings again for us this morning. Very similar to last week, because I really do think that the second half of John chapter 3 is just reiterating again what John's trying to get at in the first half. If you're here this morning and you're not believing in Jesus, what John the Evangelist wants you to do is to reconsider. He wants you to think again about who Jesus is. John is firm in saying he is the Son of God. He is the one sent from heaven. He proclaims God's word to us. And if you are rejecting this, you stand condemned. But if you simply receive it, you simply believe it, then eternal life is the gift that he wants to give to you. Now, in Jesus' own time, I actually can kind of understand why some folk didn't get this. Jesus said some weird things. I think I, I don't think I would have accepted Jesus' testimony in his own day. I know I wouldn't have. Jesus said stuff like, if you knock down this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. It's so that, that that's like, what? That's kind of a crazy idea. Jesus said, I have living water that if you drink of it, you'll live forever. That sounds kind of weird. Jesus is going to come up uh, in chapter 6 and he's going to say, uh, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. So what? Like Jesus said some weird stuff. But this is the thing. John the Evangelist is writing after Jesus' story here on earth is finished. And he believes and confesses not just because of the things that Jesus said, but because of the great work that Jesus did when he died on the cross and rose from the dead. That we stand now in this privileged position, a better position than John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples are in, because we know the full story, that Jesus showed us that he is who he said that he was, and that we can trust his word, because he told us he was going to die and rise again, and he did. And that's the miracle that we pointed to say, yes indeed, he is the Son of God, the one we need to trust and listen to. And so if you're here this morning and you have questions about this, man, do I ever encourage you to come and ask. And if you feel as though this is true, and this morning might just be the time for you to confess your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus. But for the rest of us, who are already uh, believing in Jesus, man, this, this what a great, great verse for us to remember. He must become greater, I must become less. Because this, this has almost endless application for us. We live in a culture that, that wants to appeal to us on the basis of building up our own renown, our own glory.
0: My generation,
1: like it, it's a whole joke, right? The, the, the generation Y, um, I'm actually right on the border between Generation X and Generation Y. I've tried to explain this to the youth, they make fun of me for it. Some of them call me a boomer, that's, that's insane. My generation was told, you are special, you are wonderful, you can do whatever you put your mind to, you're marvellous. And and we were pumped full of all this good stuff. And look, it was well-intentioned. But it wasn't totally true. Because it gave us this impression that we were all destined for some sort of worldly glory and that's what, what, what this life is meant to be about. But it's not. It's not meant to be about my glory, it's not meant to be about your glory, it's meant to to be about the glory of Christ. That's what we're here for, to glorify him. And John the Baptist understood this. John the Baptist was a guy that was getting renowned. John was a big deal. Crowds were, were like coming out from the city, going out into the desert to hear from him and listen to him. He had to go and find a place where there was more water because so many folks were coming to be baptized by him. John was a big deal. But when Jesus came, when it was a choice between who was going to get the renown here, John the Baptist understood, I step aside and it goes to him. And so for us, we have to have that same heart attitude, that when glory is being given, are we going to seek to make much of ourselves, or are we going to seek to make much of Christ? Now, I think a bad application of this would be to walk in some sort of false humility, where, you know, you sort of always... Downplay and deny, in the sort of sense of you know, oh no, I'm not, I'm, I'm nothing, I'm less than, and, and and you know what I'm talking about that that false humility that people get, where they, they it's like an act that they're putting on. They feel like they have to sort of make themselves look low and all that sort of stuff, but it's not genuine. That's, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is a sincere understanding that the good things that I've been given by God, the things that I'm good at, I don't need to deny them. But rather, I need to affirm that it is God who has given them to me. If I'm really good at my job, I say, you know, I'm just so so thankful for the opportunities that I've had to learn and to grow, the people who've taught me, and that Jesus has put all these people in my life, so that I can praise him for the good gifts that he's given. I I don't have to say, no, I suck, I'm I'm horrible, I'm all. That's not totally true. Yes, compared to God, of course, we all suck. But to make much of God. John the Baptist doesn't respond with, you know, I'm nothing, I'm less than. He's a friend at the wedding. He's invited. He's part of the crew. He's there with him, right? It's a privileged place to be in, but he just understands that as blessed as I am in this, that's the guy. And so it doesn't necessarily mean that in order to give the God the glory, I have to turn down a promotion at work, but rather as I receive it, I do so in a way that testifies to others that I believe that Jesus is the greater one that I'm going to take that promotion, thankfully, but instead of doing what everyone else does, making themselves a demigod and then having their underlings bow down towards them, I'm going to walk in humility and seek to love others and see them succeed. And if somebody praises me, I say, you know, I'm just so thankful for the opportunities God's given me because I couldn't do this without him. People go, what? Anti-culture says you just claim that glory for yourself. We say no. If you're a great student at school, if you, if, you, if, you, if you are a wealthy person because over years and years of investing in wisdom and all that sort of stuff, you, you don't say bad things about yourself, but rather you recognize where all these good gifts have come from. John says it in this passage, right? That you can't receive anything except what comes from heaven. So we don't want to walk in false humility. We want to walk in a genuine understanding of how much greater God is than us. That yes, we make ourselves less in renown compared to him. But actually, the good gifts that he's given me, that glorifies him too. If I've got good grades at school, praise God. I'm so thankful that I've had the chance to do this, that he's put me in a situation where I can work hard. Let me use these gifts to to serve others who maybe don't, don't have the same sorts of opportunities that I have. this is just this, this is just endless for us like the, the, the amount of time like every single day we have an opportunity to make less of ourselves and make more of God I, i'll finish with this there's a I had a story from one of our, our youth kids this week i won't, I 't say this person's name, but I do share this with their permission uh they've been telling their friends about Jesus inviting them to youth uh we're getting excited about Christmas, even prayed with people before tests and all that sort of thing, or invited them to pray with them. Just awesome stuff. And this last week, uh, they were approached by eight of their friends who said, we just feel like you're forcing your religion on us. That's a, that's tough in high school. To have a group of people come to you like that. One on eight. And so we just feel like you're pushing religion. And I suppose, they were not, this is not what they were doing. They were not forcing, that's not what was going on. And I said to this person, you know what, that sucks, that's really, really hard. But you know what? It's also awesome. It is fantastic. It is so God-glorifying. And I said to them, thank you so much for encouraging my faith this week. That you would be willing, to speak out for Jesus and to make much of him and give him praise, even though it's costing you this trouble with your friends. That, that maybe even, you know, these relationships will be changed going, going forward because of this. But you've been willing to do this because you want to make much of Jesus. And that's hard. That's a tough thing for a teenager to process, right? But I just wanted to say, you are so awesome. Because this is exactly what the Christian life is meant to look like. We sacrifice our own renown. We give up our own status for the sake of Jesus and making his name great. And I'm going to pray that we all do that. Oh God, thank you so much for sending Jesus from heaven above. Thank you that you have shown us your glory in him. Thank you that he is above us. And thank you that his testimony about you is true. That we know you truly when we believe the words that he proclaimed. That you revealed his godness to us through his death and resurrection. That we know that, as Jesus himself is going to say later in this gospel, he is the way, the truth, and the life. We pray, Father, for anyone here who is not believing in you, that by the power of your spirit you would give them the gift of faith and they would believe your word and they would receive eternal life and become part of your kingdom. Father, for all of those here who are already confessing faith in Jesus, praise God for that. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to walk like John the Baptist in this. That we would be willing to trade on our own renown, our own reputation, our own popularity, in order to make much of you, to lift you on high. That, Lord, we would become less that you might become greater. That we would not seek to hold on to glory for ourselves, but rather, Lord, we would always direct it towards you, thankful for every good gift that you have given us, always recognizing the blessings that we have, and that you are the one who pours them upon us. And for those of us who are in in tough and difficult circumstances who wish we had something to praise you with, may we give you praise that even in our troubles, you are still our hope and our comforter and the source of all the good that we know is to come for us in the life to come. So Father, may we walk in humility this week, making much of you and less of ourselves by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.